Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 108. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and it's so great to have your company. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a book pack consisting of book one and two of Wendy J. Dunn's Falling Pomegranate Seeds series, The Duty of Daughters, and All Manner of Things. A huge thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the early life of Nicholas Hilliard is Dr. Elizabeth Goldring. Elizabeth was born in Washington, D.C. and received her M.A., M.Phil and Ph.D. from Yale University. She has lived in the U.K. for the past 25 years. An honorary reader at the University of Warwick Centre for the Study of the Renaissance and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, Dr. Goldring has published widely on 16th and 17th century court culture. Her work is interdisciplinary, often straddling the boundaries between literature, history and art history. Dr. Goldring's latest book is Nicholas Hilliard, Life of an Artist, which won Apollo Magazine's Art Book of the Year Award and was shortlisted for three other major awards. She's currently working on a new book on Hans Holbein the Younger and the Court of Henry VIII. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Thank you. 
Welcome to Talking Tudors, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me onto your show. I suppose a good place to start is you just introducing yourself to our listeners and telling us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm an independent scholar in which capacity I write books, give lectures, do a bit of television and radio work. It's quite varied. Um, I have an honorary affiliation with the University of Warwick, where I'm an honorary reader. I've been connected to the University of Warwick for over 20 years, actually, in one variety or another, since um, 1999, when I was appointed a postdoctoral research fellow at Warwick Centre for the Study of the Renaissance. And for a number of years, as a postdoctoral research fellow at Warwick, I was involved in various interdisciplinary research projects, one being the Europa Triumphans Project, which looked at European court festivals of the Renaissance period, another being the John Nichols Project, which looked at Elizabethan court festivals, and particularly those arising out of Elizabeth I's progresses. Originally, however, I'm American. I was born in the States. I grew up in the States, was educated there. I studied English literature as an undergraduate at Williams College in Massachusetts, and then for my graduate work, uh, branched out into um, a more interdisciplinary approach and did my MA, MPhil, and PhD in Renaissance Studies at Yale. And it was in the course of working on my PhD thesis, which was on Sir Philip Sidney's depiction of painting in his literature, that I ended up coming to England to do some archival research. I was interested to see if I could look at inventories and other sources that might flesh out my sense of what sort of access Sydney would have had in England uh, to paintings and other works of art. And um, really, I, I, I never went back after, after that point. I found so much more in the archives than I ever anticipated. And I ended up spending most of my PhD period at Yale, actually in England, in the archives, and doing all the research and writing up in England. And then emailing or actually this was so long ago I think probably it was less emailing and more posting hard copies um, back to New Haven to my advisor so that was really one of those exciting times where you end up going in a completely different direction because of something unexpected that you find in the archives and yes so I really then have have been in England ever since I got the the first work job very soon after completing my PhD and it's It's been wonderful to be able to work on all sorts of interdisciplinary topics over the years and to be continuously affiliated with an interdisciplinary centre like Warwick's Centre for the Study of the Renaissance. What a wonderful career. And so do you remember what actually sparked your interest in in Tudor history in particular? Was it those finds in the archives or were you kind of interested in it prior? Um, Well, I think I came at Tudor history from initially from Tudor literature, I, as I mentioned, I studied English literature as an undergraduate, and I always gravitated towards Renaissance topics. So it was always Sidney and Spencer and Shakespeare that I most enjoyed as an English major. But I was the sort of person who loved looking at the footnotes at the back of the textbook to find out what those topical references were. I was just so fascinated by all of the inside references to various courtiers, to various political events. And I suppose at some point during my undergraduate career, I just thought I don't want to always be having to flip to the back to find out what all of this is about. I want to know the history well enough to understand the art and architecture well enough that I just pick up these references naturally while I'm reading. So it's not interrupting my experience of the literature to always be flipping to the notes. And so I suppose that's how I ended up, instead of doing a PhD in English literature, 
gravitating into this interdisciplinary graduate program in Renaissance studies at Yale, which involves focusing on Tudor literature in my case, but putting it in this much broader spectrum and putting it in the context of politics, religion, art and architecture. And it was just um, really a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to be able to do that. Yes, and in the course of your um, career thus far, you've written and edited a number of books, including Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester and the World of Elizabethan Art and Progresses. It sounds fantastic. I need to check that one out. And another one that's right up my alley because I'm obsessed with Tudor Progresses, Public Processions of Queen Elizabeth I. Today, however, we're going to focus on your most recent uh, book, Nicholas Hilliard, Life of an Artist, which was published in 2019. And just before we started recording, I was saying to you that I've really recently received the book and it is oh it's just stunning so anyone that's interested in in Tudor history or art history go and have a look at that book but I would love to hear a little bit about the inspiration behind this particular project and when um, the life of Nicholas Hilliard kind of captured you. Um, Absolutely well I think in some ways Hilliard has been lurking in the background of my life for many many years obviously so many of his images are the iconic images of particular figures of the Elizabethan age. And so with so many um, individuals of the period, whatever mental image we have often derives from a Hilliard miniature. So I I feel as though Hilliard has been hovering over me for for many years, but the, I suppose the immediate catalyst for the book was um, my previous book on Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, which actually itself grew out of my PhD thesis on Sir Philip Sidney. So in the in the Dudley book, what I was trying to do was reconstruct Dudley's picture collections and the milieu of painters and other artists that orbited around him. And Hilliard was one of those artists. Hilliard portrayed Dudley on a number of occasions and Hilliard counted Dudley as a very important patron. But in the course of writing the Dudley book, I realized that there were a lot of questions that I had about Hilliard that I couldn't find answers to easily in the existing literature. And I didn't really need to be able to answer those questions to write the Dudley book. But I guess the questions um, lingered in the back of my mind. And once the Dudley book was finished and I was starting to think about what I might work on next, I just kept coming back to Hilliard and these, these unanswered questions. And in chatting with various colleagues, it soon became apparent that 2019 would not only mark the 400th anniversary of Hilliard's death, but that it was an anniversary that's going to be commemorated in various ways, including by um, a major retrospective of Hilliard's miniatures at the National Portrait Gallery. And so it, it quickly became apparent to me that if there was ever going to be a really good time to write a book on Hilliard, this would be it, because there was clearly going to be a lot of renewed interest in Hilliard surrounding that 400th anniversary of his death. So um, there's nothing like a firm deadline to focus the mind. (laughs) Um, And it it was hard work because I so wanted to meet that deadline. Um, But it was also great fun just being completely immersed in Hilliard. So it really was Hilliard 24-7 for a few years there because I just said no to anything else that was offered to me on the grounds that I just needed to focus on Hilliard in order to um, get the book done in time for the anniversary year. And it was just a a magical experience getting to 
see so many of his miniatures and in many cases getting to hold them in my hands. So many curators and private collectors were just incredibly generous with their time and with their holdings. And with miniatures, it, they're, they're such intimate objects, you really do almost need to hold them right up to your eye to get a, a real feel for how they would originally have been intended to be experienced. So to be allowed to do that on so many occasions was just, just magical. And it was wonderful. And um, Hilliard seems to be this figure that so many people find interesting. And so everyone seemed very keen to help when I asked for help. Um, in particular archives or uh, in particular galleries. So um, I was I was very fortunate in that respect. It's amazing. Just imagining the people that had held it before you is quite amazing. It, yeah, <laughs> mind-blowing, yeah. isn't it? It really is. Um, you know, there were a lot of moments where I felt as though, well, I didn't feel, I mean, I did have shivers uh, yeah, down my spine yeah. and this sense of almost reaching through the centuries to, to touch the past. And there were so many serendipitous moments as well, um, just as the book was going to press and we pretty much reached the point of no return in, in terms of making any uh, adjustments to the text, much less the layout. An archivist at the National Archives very kindly contacted me to say that by chance she had discovered in a box of odds and sods in the basement of the National Archives the original version of Hilliard's will and oh, wow. my <laughs> in having a look at that and the text of the original wasn't different in any substantive way from the the copies that everyone has known about for for years and years and years but to actually get to go to the National Archives and see the original the one that the dying Hilliard tried to sign but couldn't really sign because he was so weak at this point was just really quite an extraordinary experience and the communication from this particular archivist by a great stroke of luck came through just in the nick of time that we were able to redo the layout of the last couple of pages of the book so we could include a photograph of his attempt at a signature and um, include some mention of this uh, discovery. So I did feel often when working on this book that, you know, there was there was just a lot of luck involved. There right, were so many yeah. times when had the timing been off by just a week or two, certain bits of information wouldn't have um, I wouldn't have been able to include. And time and time again, things just seemed to fall into place. Now, um, Elizabeth, when I was thinking about what questions I wanted to ask you about Nicholas Hillier, there were obviously so, so many. So I thought in this episode, we'd focus on his early life because I, I sort of feel that that's something we don't hear about too often. Um, yeah. So he was born in Exeter, probably in 1547, as you say. So what was Exeter like at the time of his birth? And what do we know about his family and how he spent his early years? Well, 1547 was obviously a momentous year in the, in the broader scheme of English history. Henry VIII dies, Edward VI comes to the throne, and the pace of religious reform suddenly starts to escalate rapidly. So very quickly, the Latin rites go out in terms of the church service, um, and church walls start to be whitewashed just come down, root screens are removed, etc. So Nicholas Hilliard would have been part of that generation in England, which was the first in hundreds and hundreds of years not to grow up, absolutely surrounded by religious art and artifacts. So I think that's perhaps the first really interesting point to make about the timing of his birth. Exeter, though far removed from London and the court in terms of geography, 
actually was in many ways on the front line of the Edwardine Reformation. In 1549, of course, we have the siege of Exeter, which is sort of the culmination of the the prayer book rebellion, which starts as a small localized revolt against the abolition of the Latin church rites and ends up with a 10,000 strong peasant army encircling the city walls of Exeter and the citizens of Exeter, including the Hilliard family, enduring a month or so of um, siege warfare. So Hilliard, of course, was just a toddler at the time. He may or may not have had any direct memories of that himself, but we know that his father and his father's apprentice, his father was Goldsmith, played an important role in the defense of Exeter, took a pretty robust line um, against the Catholic rebels. Um, So no doubt stories like these were part of the Hilliard family mythology. You can kind of imagine these being the sort of stories that got told around the supper table year after year. The Hilliards as I've just mentioned, were Protestants at a time when Protestants were still in the, very much in the minority in Exeter and the West Country. They were a family of goldsmiths. Hilliard's father was a goldsmith. His Both of his grandfathers were goldsmiths, one in Exeter, one actually in Cornwall. Hilliard was the eldest of eight children, four boys and four girls. Of the four Hilliard boys, three, including Nicholas, trained as goldsmiths. So really goldsmithery and Protestantism or practically in Nicholas Hilliard's blood. And I'm sure that from the moment of his birth, it was assumed that he would become a goldsmith and probably also assumed that he would spend his entire life in Exeter working alongside his father. Um, obviously, events took a slightly different turn. But I think one of the things I tried to do when researching and writing the book was to avoid falling into the trap of reading backwards from what yeah. we know and to try to be in the moment and thinking about things the way he and his family would have been thinking about them. And I don't think anyone in a million years would have thought in 1547 he's going to grow up to be a miniature painter. Yeah, that's so true. I love what you say, because I think, especially with the Tudors, it's so easy and people do that all the time, read the story backwards and kind of imagine that they knew what was coming. But of course, like you and I, they had no idea what was around the corner or going to happen tomorrow. So I think that's a really good point to make. As for the Hilliards, obviously a family of goldsmiths, as as you've said. So it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about goldsmiths in general and, and I suppose goldsmithery in the 16th century. Well, Exeter was very much a city of guilds, um, and most of the crafts in Exeter had their own local guild with their own local guild hall. Goldsmiths in Exeter, however, were a bit unusual in this respect in that they were answerable to the London Guild, the Goldsmiths Company of London, which would periodically send representatives to the West Country throughout England, in fact, to check on the activities of regional goldsmiths and make sure that they were producing goods that it were of the requisite standard. A goldsmith in Exeter like Richard Hilliard Nicholas's father would have had to swear allegiance to the London company. Goldsmiths were in general pretty prosperous in Exeter, certainly if you were reasonably successful, which Richard Hilliard was, and it wasn't uncommon for goldsmiths in Exeter to play a prominent role in the local government in the civic life of Exeter and indeed Richard Hilliard did go on to hold various civic offices, bailiff and sheriff, though he never never got the top job of mayor. 
That stands in interesting contrast to the status of painters at this time in Exeter and more generally in England. Painters were really, for the most part, on the, the margins of civic life. So painters in Exeter, for example, didn't organise themselves into a guild until nearly the end of the 16th century. And I think you get a feel for the difference in status when you look at, say, inventories of household goods in the 16th century. Plate is almost always the first thing listed. Plate was a high status item, a high value good. Paintings, if listed at all, are almost always the very last thing listed. And if they are valued, paintings tend to be valued in a, in a quite literal sort of way according to their raw materials. So, you know, okay, that's a piece of wood two feet by four feet, okay, it's worth however much a piece of wood of that size would be. There wasn't really a sense of um, paintings as fine art objects, uh, particularly much yet at this stage. But all of that changes over the course of Hilliard's life and in no small part because of Hilliard's own efforts to affect a change in attitudes towards painting and the painter. And that was in fact, one of the things that attracted me to Hilliard's story, the way in which his life offered a lens through which to talk about some larger shifts in English society and in the status of painting and painters, as well as telling the story of his own remarkable journey from Exeter to, to the heart of the, of the English court. But to become a goldsmith, you needed to undertake an apprenticeship, which normally lasted about seven years, but I mean, that wasn't set in stone. Sometimes it was a bit less, sometimes it was a bit more. If your father was a goldsmith, the apprenticeship tended to be slightly more informal. You could become a goldsmith via something known as patrimony. Um, the assumption being that if you grew up in a household with a father who was a goldsmith, you were sort of observing and helping out from the year, you know, from the very beginning and this sense that you just sort of picked it up almost via osmosis. Yeah. Uh, we don't know too much about Hilliard's formal education as a boy in Exeter. Um, I mean, presumably he was observing his father and helping out from a young age. Goldsmith's houses and workshops tended to be in the same premises. So the workshop tended to be on the ground floor and would be, uh, you know, perhaps a single large room that would combine storage space and workspace and might have one or more windows open to the street, which would be effectively a retail space uh, for, for selling items. Um, and then the family and apprentices and perhaps the odd journeyman would, would live above the shop, so to speak. So I think we can assume that young Nicholas and in due course his brothers would have grown up observing goings on in the, in the family workshop, no doubt helping out. Nicholas would have been taught to read and write in English and a bit of Latin as well from a young age. These were skills that were expected of apprentice goldsmiths. I think, however, Hilliard's Latin probably never moved much beyond the rudimentary stage. And I, I, it's just a guess, but looking at Hilliard's writings as an adult, his correspondence and also a treatise that he wrote um, on miniature painting. These are written in English and have only very occasional bits of Latin thrown in and then quite basic Latin. And Hilliard was not someone to, to hide his light under a bushel. So yes. Had <laughs> he been a crack Latinist, he wouldn't have been able to resist showing it off. So the fact that he doesn't makes me think that probably his Latin was, was um, you know, pretty workmanlike. But undoubtedly, he had very good reading and writing skills in English. And 
he also seems to have picked up French uh, later on uh, whilst on the continent, but we'll no doubt come to that in, yeah. uh, in I didn't want to sort of jump too far ahead. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. I love all that detail, just imagining him in the workshop. And I was really quite surprised, um, Elizabeth, to read that uh, between 1555 and 1559, the young Nicholas Hilliard actually lived with another family, the Bodley family on the continent. So who were these Bodleys and why did did his parents choose to send their eldest son away for such a long period? Very good question. Well, the Bodleys were another local family in Exeter. John Bodley was a very rich and successful merchant and importer-exporter. He was also, like Richard Hilliard, Nicholas's father, a committed Protestant in a part of the world where Protestants were still greatly outnumbered by Catholics. John Bodley had been one of the uh, men who had financed the army of mercenaries that eventually rescued Exeter from the um, siege that was the culmination of the Prayer Book Rebellion. And once Edward VI died and Mary came to the throne and all of the Catholic rites were restored, people like John Bodley started to find life in Exeter rather difficult. Richard Hilliard, for whatever reason, seems to have flown under the radar, possibly because he was not nearly as rich as Bodley and thus had not been able to, he hadn't financed um, Protestant activities in the same way. Similarly, I think the Marian state needed goldsmiths like Richard Hilliard to do things like meltdown Protestant communion cups and make Roman Catholic chalices. Um, So I think Richard Hilliard's um, status as goldsmith possibly provided him with some immunity from persecution for his religious views, but John Bodley was much more exposed. So he, like many other rich and prominent Protestants in um, Marian England, sought exile in various Protestant strongholds on the continent. Bodley seems to have left Exeter in probably late 1554, early 1555. Once he had settled down and found a safe stronghold in Basel on what is now the Dutch-German border, he sent for his wife and children and various servants to join him. And for whatever reason, young Nicholas Hilliard, then aged about eight, tagged along with the Bodley family and ended up spending four and a half years in exile on the continent with them. And the Bodleys really became a surrogate family Precisely how and why that came to pass, I'm not sure we will ever know. I mean, undoubtedly, Richard Hilliard and John Bodley must, as fellow Protestants, have crossed paths at various points in Exeter, but they moved in very different social circles. The Hilliards had nowhere near as much money or status as the Bodleys. Perhaps the Hilliards thought that in due course they would join the Bodleys on the continent, though on some level I think they must have known that it would be very difficult ever to have enough disposable cash to do that. It also would have been very difficult for Richard Hilliard to have found work on the continent because the rules and regulations that continental guilds imposed on foreign-born goldsmiths would have made it virtually impossible for him to earn any money abroad, whereas Bodley not only had a lot of liquid assets, but also as an importer exporter was just better set up to find ways to earn money abroad. So I I suspect somehow the Hilliards found an opportunity to keep at least one of their children safe, to save his soul perhaps as they saw it. 
And of course, no one knew how long Mary would be on the throne. No one really knew what, of course, what was around the corner. So I should think they saw an opportunity and seized it and no one really quite knew how things would pan out. But it must have been very difficult for all yeah. involved. Very difficult indeed. Absolutely. And and do we know very much about how the Bodleys and, and young Nicholas spent their time abroad? Did they move around or were they in the same place? They did move around a fair bit. This was pretty typical for Marian exiles. It was a, a peripatetic existence. Um, so the Bodleys and young Hilliard spent about a year in Basel, then moved on to Frankfurt and spent about another year there, and then made their way to Geneva, where they spent about two and a half years, during which they worshipped in John Knox's congregation. And in many ways, I think, these years must have been quite exciting for a young boy. There must have been a real sense of adventure at times. But equally, I think it's important not to romanticise it because I think it must have been terrifying at times and very, very difficult. Journeys had to be planned to avoid, if at all possible, passing through Catholic lands. It was just very dangerous. If you were Protestants caught out in Catholic lands and the cities in which the exiles sought refuge were not always hugely welcoming and sometimes though the English exiles were initially welcomed as time wore on local resentment sometimes grew there were also all sorts of infighting within the exile communities because of course there were various factions within the new Protestant faiths so it was in many ways I think probably quite difficult and though most Marian exiles were quite wealthy they found on the continent that they were all being forced to live in greatly reduced circumstances so for example in Frankfurt typically by the mid-1550s when the Bodleys and Hilliard were there uh, you would have four or five households crammed together in accommodation that ideally would have been designed for a single household. And because of the overcrowding, disease was rife and the threat of plague was omnipresent. And that's something which I have to say, um, as we've all now lived through a year of global pandemic, I think it now makes you realise just in a slightly new way uh, what life must have been like in the 16th century when plague was this black cloud kind of always hanging over one. So I think there were a lot of ways in which life in exile must have been anxiety producing, stressful, just very worrying. But I think in many ways it was the making of Nicholas Hilliard because the, the deprivations seemed to have bred a certain esprit de corps which had the effect within the English exile community of breaking down barriers of class and rank and hierarchy that would have existed at home in England. So for example, in Geneva, the Bodleys made married a gentleman, something that probably wouldn't have happened at home. And I suspect that this may help to explain why the adult Hilliard seems to have been incredibly self-confident and have moved with great ease in court circles. Similarly, I suspect that it was during these years on the continent that Hilliard as a boy was exposed just in the course of going about his daily life to art and architecture that he never would have seen had he spent his entire childhood in Exeter and probably in ways that perhaps got him thinking about the possibility that maybe there were other things he might want to do in life besides be a goldsmith alongside his father in Exeter. We know from 
Hilliard's writings as an adult that he absolutely idolized both Holbein and Dürer. And I suspect that it was during these years on the continent that he first encountered paintings by both Holbein and Dürer. Uh, one of his fellow exiles in Wesel was Catherine Batty, a dowager Duchess of Suffolk, who had been a great patron of Holbein at the court of Henry VIII. And we, of course, don't know exactly what she took with her into exile, but I speculate in the book that she may well have taken with her Holbein's miniatures of her young sons. Miniatures, of course, were designed to be portable, and her young sons had both died not long after they were painted by Holbein. So I would have thought if there's anything that you grab as you're yeah. rushing out the door to go into exile as a mother, those are the things you stick in your pocket. And so I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that at some point in that year that Hilliard and the Bodleys overlapped with Catherine Bertie in Vesel, that Catherine Bertie perhaps showed these miniatures, assuming she had them with her, to Hilliard, who was about the age at that point that her sons had been when they'd been portrayed by Holbein. And you can imagine that perhaps planting the seed of an idea. Similarly in Frankfurt, though Dora by this stage was long dead, memories of Dora uh, were very much alive and well in Frankfurt. Dora's Heller altarpiece was something of a tourist attraction at this stage in Frankfurt. Similarly, the Frankfurt Book Fair, which happened uh, twice a year every spring and autumn still would have had a swift trade in Dora prints and books uh, so I think it's entirely possible that Hilliard in the course of his time in Frankfurt first came across images by Dora first perhaps heard about Dora and of course in Geneva John Bodley ends up getting involved in financing the publication of the Geneva Bible which meant that Hilliard had a front row seat for the publication of the Geneva Bible which was unusual for having a large number of illustrations and one of the people, another Geneva, another Marian exile in Geneva who was involved in all this was Miles Coverdale, who some years earlier had worked with Holbein on the frontispiece for the Coverdale Bible and no doubt brought that experience to bear on what was happening with the production of the Geneva Bible. So I think Hilliard in these four and a half years of exile on the continent ended up meeting all sorts of important people, being exposed to ideas and images uh, that he never would have come across in Exeter. And that's not to say that he wouldn't have ever heard, say, Holbein's name in Exeter. I mean, I think, for example, he may well in church have come across the frontispiece to the Coverdale Bible that had been designed by Holbein, but he wouldn't necessarily have known Holbein's name in connection with that image. Similarly, as his father and grandfather were both goldsmiths and Holbein had designed uh, patterns for goldsmiths, again, it's not impossible that he occasionally heard Holbein's name mentioned in Exeter. But I think in terms of encountering Holbein as a painter and as a portraitist and certainly as a miniaturist, that almost certainly would date from chance encounters during his time in, in exile during Mary's reign. Just love hearing about all those connections and those threads that you can obviously see carried on into his, his adult life. They're one of my favorite things, making all those <laughs> little connections. <laughs> so thank you for sharing. So the Bodley household with 
young Hilliard in tow returned to England eventually in the autumn of 1559. So that's nearly a year after Mary Tudor's death and the accession of Elizabeth, her half-sister. So did Hilliard remain with the Bodleys when he returned to England or did he then return to his family in Exeter? That is an excellent question. And Traditionally, it had been assumed that Hilliard remained with the Bodleys. Uh, The Bodleys put down roots in London on their return. I think John Bodley now felt after hobnobbing with the great and good on the continent that Exeter was a bit too small and sleepy for him. So he wanted to be near the action in London. And it traditionally has been assumed that Hilliard remained in London with the Bodleys living with them. I, however, came across various bits of documentary evidence while researching my book, which collectively suggested to me that the the likelihood, I think, is that Hilliard, in fact, went back to Exeter. We know that Richard Hilliard, Nicholas's father, came up to London about a month after the Bodleys returned to London, and he had business reasons for doing that. But it seems like quite a big coincidence. I suspect that he also um, took the opportunity to scoop Nicholas up and take him back to Exeter. No doubt Nicholas wanted to see his mother and his siblings. New siblings had been born while he had been away. The family had moved house. A lot had happened. And again, I think whatever ideas Nicholas may have had in his own head um, about what he wanted to do with his life. I, I, I still think at this point, I mean, he's, he's only 12. The expectation, certainly on the part of Richard Hilliard, must still have been that Nicholas would become a goldsmith and work in the family business in Exeter. Events didn't obviously quite work out that way. By 1562, Nicholas and his younger brother, John, are off to London, both to be apprenticed to leading London goldsmiths, Nicholas to a chap called Robert Brandon, John to a chap called Edward Gilbert. And this was another um, exciting discovery that I just chanced upon in the archives. Traditionally, no one's really been able to figure out how these high profile apprenticeships came about. But what I discovered um, while rooting around in the archives of the Goldsmiths Company of London was that Richard Hilliard in Exeter exchanged several letters with Brandon and Gilbert, the two men who would go on to be his son's masters, in the year or so leading up to the commencement of their apprenticeships. The letters themselves do not survive, but one gets potted summaries in the records of the Goldsmiths Company. And so this correspondence seems to have begun because a local person in Exeter came into Richard Hilliard's shop with a gold chain that needed to be repaired. And the gold chain had been purchased from a London goldsmith. Richard, in the course of repairing it, discovered that the gold chain wasn't, in fact, real gold. It was gold deceitfully stuffed with lead. So he did what you were meant to do in this sort of situation and wrote to the London Guild, the Goldsmiths Company of London, to alert them to this fraud. And for whatever reason, this seems to have created an ongoing dialogue between Richard and the two goldsmiths that were charged with dealing with this, Brandon and Gilbert. And eventually Richard even went up to London to meet with them face to face. And obviously we can't construct this exchange of letters or the face-to-face meeting with precision. But I think clearly what must have happened is that at some point in this dialogue, Richard thought, aha, this could be a good opportunity for my sons. Um, And meanwhile, there were various things happening economically in Exeter, which I think would have caused Richard and 
other guildsmen to begin to wonder what the future was for goldsmithery in Exeter. And I think Richard with four sons might plausibly have been starting to wonder around this time, can this small city of just 10,000 inhabitants or so really support four sons going into goldsmithery? So I think he he had this stroke of luck with the deceitful chain and managed to spin it into apprenticeships for his two eldest sons. Um, and so then presumably Nicholas and his younger brother John would have travelled up to London together from Exeter. And then they both embarked on these high profile apprenticeships for seven years uh, in, in, in parallel. Oh, I didn't know that his brother was there too. So that's, that's really interesting. So Robert Brandon, he was a royal goldsmith, I believe. So what do we know of, of him? And what role, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the role that royal goldsmiths played in general? Uh, well, royal goldsmiths, there were there were a handful of them. Um, it's not as though Brandon was the only one. But the royal goldsmiths, basically had a monopoly on supplying and repairing royal plate for the royal household. So very lucrative uh, post. And in addition, of course, once you had that stamp of approval from the crown, of course, leading courtiers wanted to buy plate from the royal goldsmiths as well. So Brandon was busy supplying plate to leading courtiers like Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. And in addition, Brandon and often many other leading goldsmiths of this period, not just royal goldsmiths, effectively functioned as money lenders and bankers. So we know, for example, that Robert Dudley, in addition to purchasing plate for his own properties from Brandon, also uh, basically treated Brandon as his personal banker and was forever borrowing huge sums from Brandon. We don't, in fact, know if Brandon personally made any of the plate that bore his name. He may not ever have learnt how to do that. He may not have wanted to sully his hands, so to speak. Um, it's slightly unclear with these goldsmiths who were absolutely at the top of the tree, whether they actually worked in their own workshops or if they simply lent their names almost like a luxury brand to the products that bore their imprimatur. But anyway, for Hilliard to have an opportunity to be apprenticed to someone like Brandon was really to gain an entree into the upper echelon of city life. Brandon was one of the richest men in the city of London, into the upper echelons of the Goldsmiths Company, because of course, Brandon was also a leading member of, of, of the Guild. And Brandon with you know someone like Robert Dudley, the Queen's favourite, as a patron and also in a sense a client, someone who is dependent on Brandon for, for money, that provided a very useful entree at court. So Hilliard suddenly was catapulted into this really quite rarefied environment. That being said, as an apprentice, a lot of what one would have done on a day-to-day -day basis would have been dog's body work. I mean, you were there to carry heavy crates of things and to just do the most menial things whilst also learning the craft. But one of the curious things is that normally goldsmiths would emerge from their apprenticeship skilled in whatever it was that their master was known for. So in Brandon's case, Brandon was known for plate and money lending, basically. Hilliard somehow emerges from his apprenticeship with Brandon to the extent that he ever really worked as a goldsmith. It was in jewellery, not plate. And there was a very distinct divide between these branches at this state. And so far as money goes, Hilliard was absolutely hopeless. I mean, he was 
not in a position to lend money to anyone. He was always borrowing money from friends and family. So he somehow emerges from this seven-year apprenticeship with Brandon, not really knowing anything about the things Brandon was good at, but somehow being very good at lots of other things. And meanwhile, having apparently picked up this parallel skill of uh, knowing how to paint in miniature. And precisely how that came about remains a mystery. Hilliard, in his treatise on miniature painting, which he wrote towards the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign, includes various autobiographical passages and digressions. And he claimed in one of those passages that he was entirely self-taught and that basically God had chosen him and blessed him with genius and preternatural abilities and um, that he had not needed instruction in miniature painting from anyone. Now, I think we have to take that with a grain of salt. There's a lot of myth-making going on in those autobiographical passages in The Art of Lemmy Hilliard. When he came to write, that was already quite famous and clearly had an eye at that stage on posterity and was probably thinking about his future biographers and trying to <laughs> sort of spin a particular line for them. But precisely who taught him, we don't know. For a long time, art historians thought that Hilliard must have learnt everything he knew from Lavina Tierlink. But whilst it's not impossible that he learned something from Tierlink, I think in some ways she's a bit of a default choice. She's one of the few, uh, well, really the only miniature painter at um, the Elizabethan court that we know much of anything about. But there's no proof that she ever met Hilliard. And meanwhile, a lot of question marks hover over her body of work. And there are questions about whether any extant work can really confidently be assigned to her. The works that tentatively have been assigned to her, meanwhile, are of such workmanlike quality that it's difficult to connect that ability level with what we know of Hilliard's own work. So um, whilst it's not impossible that he crossed paths with Tierlink, it's not impossible that he had some sort of instruction from her or useful chats with her. I mean, she certainly could have taught him about how to grind your pigments and how to make your paintbrush and how to prepare the vellum and all that sort of thing. You know, as a figurative artist, what we know or think we know of her, she doesn't seem to have been in the first rank. But what's very interesting um, and what I tried to bring out in the book is that Hilliard's apprenticeship with Brandon coincided by chance with a period when London was absolutely flooded with emigre artists from the Low Countries and France fleeing religious persecution. And there are so many chance encounters that he might have had. Um, we know he was working as an apprentice to Brandon alongside a lot of emigre goldsmiths who would have been worshipping in the same churches as a lot of emigre painters. So I think there are so many possible chance encounters that he might have had. I assemble a body of largely circumstantial evidence in the book that I, I think points to a possible, if not probable, connection with Lucas de Hira, a Netherlandish emigre. But it's not something that at least at, at present can be proven conclusively. But what I really tried to do in that section of the book was just to open up a wide range of possibilities. I wanted to try to move the conversation about that phase of Hilliard's life beyond what it seemed to me had been quite a polarised discussion, whereby it was either he was completely self-taught and a genius, or Lavina Tierlink taught him everything he knew. And I thought, you know, probably we want to perhaps think about something in between those 
two extremes. And so what I tried to do was open up a, a wide range of possible options and in the process try to bring to life the hustle and bustle of London in the 1560s because it must have been such an exciting time for a boy from the provinces to be an apprentice because London is just starting to come into its own as an international city, a, a, a capital of commerce. Um, it is a real melting pot at this point. And you're starting to get as well the publication of all sorts of interesting tracts. So for example, uh, Thomas Hobie's English translation of Castiglione's Courtier with all sorts of ideas about, well, among other things, the idea that um, a gentleman and a courtier should know about painting and painting is an important part of, um, of a civilized cultured existence. And so there are just all these really exciting new ideas in the air. And it must have been an incredible time for Hilliard to be in London soaking all this up. And, you know, by day doing his goldsmith's apprenticeship and by night or whenever he could squeeze it in, clearly somehow learning how to paint in miniature. Do we know where the workshop was, where Brandon's workshop was, or was there an area where the goldsmiths was, were based in London? Brandon uh, had his headquarters on Cheapside, which was the premier address at the time for goldsmiths. In fact, there was a section of Cheapside that was known as Goldsmiths Row, and it was famous throughout Europe. In fact, there are some wonderful quotes from Italian visitors to London rhapsodizing about the riches of the goldsmith shops in Cheapside and the amazing displays of gold and silver plate in their windows and how there's nothing in Rome or Florence or Venice to rival the riches of Cheapside. And of course, Cheapside gets its name from the, um, the old English for mar marketplace. So it's important. Yes, I think the temptation now is you think Cheapside, oh, that must have been a bit yes. of a, <laughs> quite the reverse. Um, it was, you know, the center of, of commerce. It was the place to go for luxury shopping. And it was an unusually straight and wide thoroughfare. So it was a major processional route through the city. So coronation entries, for example, would traditionally process along Cheapside. So really, the premier place to be. And from Hilliard's point of view, just around the corner from St. Paul's, which of course is where a lot of print dealers and book dealers were based. So there just would have been a lot of very interesting things on his doorstep. Hilliard probably spent a lot of time at the tower whilst apprenticed to Brandon because Brandon had a lot of business dealings at both the Royal Mint and the um, Jewel House, both of which were located within the tower complex. So I'm sure that Hilliard a few times a week, maybe every day was making trips to the tower, uh, you know, to deliver uh, pieces of plate or to drop off messages from Brandon. So Hilliard would have particularly, for example, through time spent at the Royal Mint, have had opportunities to see examples of royal image making. You know, he may have seen coins being cast. And, you know, I think all of these different elements must have come together to influence what he eventually goes on to do as a portraitist. And of course, in the course of perhaps, you know, dropping off deliveries of plate to Robert Dudley, or I don't know, perhaps accompanying Brandon in the secretarial capacity when Brandon was discussing financial terms with Dudley. Hilliard conceivably had the opportunity to peek behind doors that otherwise would have been 
close to him, Dudley had um, a fantastic picture collection. So, um, you know, I think there are all sorts of ways in which the apprenticeship would have exposed Hilliard to images and image making. Dudley, of course, was at the forefront in the 1560s of efforts to find um, a painter up to the task of portraying Elizabeth the Fast and creating an official image of her. Elizabeth was in the habit of exchanging portraits with other European monarchs, and that was, of course, the, the convention of the day. But we know from correspondence with Elizabeth, particularly when exchanging images with other queens, Mary, Queen of Scots, and Catherine de' Medici in particular, often seems to have been a bit embarrassed by the disparity in the quality of the images being exchanged. Right. Um, so there was this desire, particularly on the part of Dudley as the Queen's favourite, but also as someone who had a, a real interest in art, in finding a painter up to the task of creating images of the Queen that could hold their own with what was being produced at, say, the French court. And in the 1560s, Dudley was looking to the continent for this painter that might come in and save the day, but not be long before he was able yeah. to look more openly. Isn't that exciting? And I imagine that possibly he would have gone to court to deliver things as well to either Dudley or, or someone else. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think what I found so interesting was the role of chance. I mean, in many ways, I think Hilliard made his own luck and his father tried to make uh, good luck for his his sons. But, but nonetheless, there were so many moments when in the Hilliard story when I thought this is just an extraordinary coincidence or yeah. you know if Hilliard had been born a few years earlier or a few years later the entire trajectory of his life could have been very very different indeed I mean he might well have ended up a goldsmith in Exeter for all his days and yes the the role of chance and contingency I thought was most remarkable. Yeah, that's really interesting. It just sounds like he was at the right place at the right time. <laughs> yes, again and again. Yeah. Now you've mentioned he obviously stays in his apprenticeship for seven years. So he's around 22 when he finishes, I suppose, in the summer of 1569. And then he opens his own workshop and takes on his own apprentices, doesn't he? Yes. Does Do we have, I know we have work of his from this sort of early 70s, but do we have any of his work from this very early, early period? Are you thinking of Goldsmith's work or are well, you... any, yeah, any, any of his work? Um, we know that he was producing jewellery in collaboration with his brother, John, who oh. gained his freedom around the same time. But we only know about that from documentary sources. There is to date no extant piece of metalwork that can be linked to Hilliard. That would be a very exciting discovery. <laughs> stumble across such thing and unfortunately we don't even know what Nicholas's uh goldsmith's mark looks like is several pieces of his father's plate survive and those are all signed with an interlocked rh for richard hilliard so presumably nicholas signed his work perhaps with an interlocking nh perhaps not unlike the uh monogram seen on some of his miniatures, but unfortunately for the moment, our knowledge of his work in jewellery design in collaboration with his brother, John, is, is based purely on written references that have survived. His earliest surviving miniatures are all from 1571, 1572. It may well be the case that he was producing miniatures prior to that date, but at present, nothing has emerged that can be 
confidently said to be by his hand. One of the really exciting discoveries of the book was being able to piece together the circumstances of the first occasion that Queen Elizabeth sat to Hilliard. It normally has been thought that that occurred in 1572, and it's certainly true that the earliest surviving miniature of Elizabeth by Hilliard, which is now in the National Portrait Gallery, is indeed inscribed with the date of 1572. But I was able, from a variety of sources, really almost like a detective, sort of piecing yeah. together to show that, in fact, Elizabeth first sat to Hilliard a year earlier in the summer of 1571. There's, in fact, quite a specific window in the July of that year when she sat to him uh, at Hampton Court in the garden uh, in response to a request from Catherine de' Medici for a miniature. Catherine had been sent a miniature of Robert Dudley by Hilliard which she had really liked and which she rather waspishly commented was so much better, basically so much better than the usual rubbish uh, <laughs> from English court. Um, and she asked if Dudley could organise a portrait of the Queen for her in the same manner. And so Dudley seems to have um, made things happen very quickly. And so Hilliard found himself suddenly, you know, in his early 20s, not that long out of his apprenticeship, sitting in a garden at Hampton Court, portraying the Queen, <laughs> and really never looked back after that, because the response from Catherine de' Medici was so enthusiastic. And so finally, Elizabeth now had solved that old problem of how to you know, sort of keep up with um, her fellow queens. Um, and, you know, she now had a, a portraitist who, um, whose images she wasn't embarrassed to send to other courts. But it's really an astonishing rise. And I think, you know, it, it really goes back to the luck of being apprenticed to Brandon, who had these close ties to Dudley. Dudley happening to have a great interest in painting and to be in the in the position to be regularly exchanging images with the French court. And of course, Dudley being someone who had a lot of influence on the Queen. And really, from that point on, it was Hilliard never looked back. He was never he never lacked for work. He went from strength to strength, really. But it's it for me, it was very interesting trying to um trace how Hilliard got to that point. Previous biographers tended to begin their stories kind of at that moment when it all takes off for Hilliard, when he emerges as a painter with the Queen's patronage in the early 1570s. And everything that came before in previous biographies tended to be covered very quickly in yes, you know, yeah. pages or a very brief introductory chapter. And so my hope was to be able to flesh out that story, that journey of how he got from the provinces to the heart of the Elizabethan court. And of course, when you embark on a project, you, you have no idea what you'll find or if you'll find anything. And so it was very exciting to me that at every stage of Hilliard's life, it turned out that there was a lot to find and a lot of new material to talk about. Um, and I didn't necessarily expect that that would be the case, but it was a it was a real thrill to find that there just was so much new material to talk about. And even with the periods of his life that are better known, you know, the, the period of, I guess, what we might think of as peak fame, even so, it, it still proved to be the case that there were additional, additional things to, um, 
to look into and, and new points to be made. So it was really, a, a, it was great fun. It, um, I mean, I, I, I guess I'd return to the detective analogy. Um, really, um, I mean, I have it's like mystery novels. And I think that's a big part of what has always appealed to me about history and, you know, particularly the, you know, archival work, you know, you are looking for clues and then you're assembling them and trying to put them together to come up with the most plausible explanation of events. And often something that when you first come across, it doesn't necessarily seem hugely relevant. Six months down the line, you suddenly realize is the crucial, uh, you know, the missing piece of the puzzle. So um, yes, it, it was just really great fun trying to reconstruct those, those early years. And like I said, I was so thrilled when I saw that a, a good, you know, a, a large part of your book is dedicated to these years that we just don't hear very much about. And I think they're crucial in obviously understanding Nicholas Hilliard and, and the artist that he was. And I love that little snapshot of him in the gardens at Hampton Court, thinking of, you know, him in his early 20s, like so young yeah. and Elizabeth in her late 30s as well. Yeah. I think that's such a such a nice thing to think about. It's it's amazing. I know my listeners are going to be upset, but we're going to actually leave the conversation about Nicholas Hilliard here prior to his rise um, at court, I suppose you could say his rise to prominence, because we're going to tackle that one in, a, in another episode, because there is so much more to discuss about Nicholas Hilliard. So, but what we are going to do, Elizabeth, if it's all right with you, at the end of episodes of Talking Tudors, I like to ask my guests 10 questions just to get to know them a little bit better. So are you ready to do that? I am. Excellent. So if you could visit anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? Well, having been locked down for the better part of the last 12 exactly, months, I'm yeah. so excited just to leave my neighborhood at this point. But um, <laughs> I, I've always had a soft spot for Italy. So anywhere in Italy would be delightful at the moment. The the art, the architecture, the food, the wine, the weather. Absolutely. Really nothing to, to fault where Italy is concerned in, in, in my book. Absolutely. I agree with you. And what is a book that you're, maybe it's on your bedside table, something you're currently reading at the moment? I am reading a novel by Richard Powers called The Overstory, which came out a couple of years ago. And um, very, very good. Um, I'm a big Richard Powers fan. So one of the upsides of lockdown has been the opportunity to really read incredibly long novels, which this one is. Um, The sort of thing that often I normally wouldn't have time to do unless I were on holiday. I wouldn't have the sort of sustained blocks of time, but it's been one of the the positives, I suppose, of lockdown is having those uh, long evenings when you can really just lose yourself in a good novel. Yeah, for us bookworms, that's been good, hasn't it? So, Elizabeth, what do you do to relax and unwind? Well, I love yoga. I have really found yoga to be a fantastic thing, particularly during uh, during lockdown. But at the other end of the spectrum, I also really like boxing. Um, I have found it's um, a great way to work off all sorts of pent-up energy. My, my personal trainer introduced me to it. And yes, so I find that that's a great way to uh, work off all sorts of frustrations. Yeah, that's a nice balance. I think the yoga and the boxing, like, you know, a little bit of inner work and a little bit of outer work. That's always good. And what's a movie or a show maybe that you've watched more than once? In terms of television shows, I, um, during lockdown, have rediscovered Frasier, which was one of my favourites back in the 90s. And um, it's just so witty and um, has um, has held up very well. So I've had fun watching some Frasiers again during lockdown and introducing the programme to my daughter. 
And now if you didn't need to sleep, if we didn't require sleep, what would you do with that extra time, do you think? Well, I suppose I would just do more reading. I would more love trying to... <laughs> <laughs> to read more. And when you were young, what did you think you were going to become when you were older? Funny enough, I always wanted to be a writer. I mean, right. the precise form that might take varied. So it yeah. stages I wanted to be a journalist. Other times I wanted to be a novelist. I think the idea of writing uh, nonfiction and history came to me somewhat later, but I I did always love books and the written word and I always enjoyed writing stories as a child. And so I think I always thought something to do with words and writing and, and books would just be a lovely way to spend one's, one's days. And what was your favourite subject at school? Was it history? I think English and English, history. history. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And Lucky Last, what is something that you're looking forward to in the near future? Getting out of lockdown. <laughs> So yes, just really getting back to some normal life will be very nice indeed. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm looking forward to being able to travel again. I'm missing England very much at the moment. So (laughs) hopefully soon, soon soonish. And the last thing, Elizabeth, is I ask guests for a Tudor takeaway. So this is something for our listeners to go and have a look at after the show. Sometimes people recommend books to read or movies to watch or a song to listen to. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? I actually have two if I'm allowed. I recently read Maggie O'Farrell's novel Hamnet, which reimagines the circumstances surrounding the death of Shakespeare's son Hamnet. And I just thought it was wonderful in its application of life in Elizabethan England, and also just a very moving story about the loss of a child in plague time. And I think, you know, as we've all experienced a global pandemic, reading about plague and how that must have impacted on day-to-day life. I think one sort of sees that through a slightly different prism now, but I just thought it was a wonderful read, a very moving read, and she had clearly done a lot of research, but she wears her learning very lightly and weaves these wonderful historical details in seemingly effortlessly. So I very much recommend Hamnet for a bit of historical fiction. And my second takeaway is an exhibition that is coming up at the Philip Maud Gallery called Love's Labours Found. Um, It's an exhibition of Elizabethan Jacobean portraiture, lots of miniatures, but not exclusively miniatures. It opens April 21st and runs until the end of May. It will be something that if you're in London, you can actually visit in person. You can in the old-fashioned way but um, there will also be an online experience available for those who can't get to London or aren't yet comfortable with venturing out and there are a lot of images from private collections in the display which are images that one might not otherwise have the opportunity to get to see so um, I think that will be great fun there's a catalogue with some essays on the paintings. I wrote a a small essay for the catalogue. So that may be of interest to some listeners as well. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to have a look at that. And I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this discussion with you. And I think your book is just beautiful, fantastic work. And I'm really looking forward to part two as well of of delving into Nicholas Hilliard's later years. So thank you so much for talking to you with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.